The Creed of a Savoyard Priest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Naomi Brewster, Melbourne, Australia. Emile by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Translated by Barbara Foxley. The Creed of a Savoyard Priest. My child, do not look to me for learned speeches or profound arguments. I am no great philosopher, nor do I desire to be one. I have, however, a certain amount of common sense and a constant devotion to truth. I have no wish to argue with you, nor even to convince you. It is enough for me to show you, in all simplicity of heart, what I really think. Consult your own heart while I speak. That is all I ask. If I am mistaken, I am honestly mistaken, and therefore my error will not be counted to me as a crime. If you, too, are honestly mistaken, there is no great harm done. If I am right, we are both endowed with reason. We have both the same motive for listening to the voice of reason. Why should you not think as I do? By birth I was a peasant and poor. To till the ground was my portion. But my parents thought it a finer thing that I should learn to get my living as a priest, and they found means to send me to college. I am quite sure that neither my parents nor I had any idea of seeking what was good, useful or true. We only sought what was wanted to get me ordained. I learned what was taught me, I said what I was told to say, I promised all that was required, and I became a priest. But I soon discovered that when I promised not to be a man, I had promised more than I could perform. Conscience, they tell us, is a creature of prejudice, but I know from experience that conscience persists in following the order of nature in spite of all the laws of man. In vain is this or that forbidden. Remorse makes her voice heard, but feebly, when what we do is permitted by well-ordered nature, and still more when we are doing her bidding. My good youth, nature has not yet appealed to your senses, May you long remain in this happy state when her voice is the voice of innocence. Remember that to anticipate her teaching is to offend more deeply against her than to resist her teaching. You must first learn to resist that you may know when to yield without wrongdoing. From my youth up I had reverenced the married state as the first and most sacred institution of nature. Having renounced the right to marry, I was resolved not to profane the sanctity of marriage. For in spite of my education and reading, I had always led a simple and regular life, and my mind had preserved the innocence of its natural instincts. These instincts had not been obscured by worldly wisdom, while my poverty kept me remote from the temptations dictated by the sophistry of vice. This very resolution proved my ruin. My respect for marriage led to the discovery of my misconduct. The scandal must be expiated. I was arrested, suspended and dismissed. I was the victim of my scruples rather than of my incontinence. 
and I had reason to believe, from the reproaches which accompanied my disgrace, that one can often escape punishment by being guilty of a worse fault. A thoughtful mind soon learns from such experiences. I found my former ideas of justice, honesty, and every duty of man overturned by these painful events, and day by day I was losing my hold on one or another of the opinions I had accepted. What was left was not enough to form a body of ideas which could stand alone, and I felt that the evidence on which my principles rested was being weakened. At last I knew not what to think, and I came to the same conclusion as yourself, but with this difference. My lack of faith was the slow growth of manhood, attained with great difficulty and all the harder to uproot. I was in that state of doubt and uncertainty which Descartes considers essential to the search of truth. It is a state which cannot continue. It is disquieting and painful. Only vicious tendencies and an idle heart can keep us in that state. My heart was not so corrupt as to delight in it, and there is nothing which so maintains the habit of thinking as being better pleased with oneself than with one's lot. I pondered, therefore, on the sad state of mortals, adrift upon the sea of human opinions without compass or rudder, and abandoned to their stormy passions with no guide but an inexperienced pilot who does not know whence he comes or whither he is going. I said to myself, I love truth, I seek her, and I cannot find her. Show me truth, and I will hold her fast. Why does she hide her face from the eager heart which would fain worship her? Although I have often experienced worse sufferings, I have never led a life so uniformly distressing as this period of unrest and anxiety, when I wandered incessantly from one doubt to another, gaining nothing from my prolonged meditations but uncertainty, darkness and contradiction, with regard to the source of my being and the rule of my duties. I cannot understand how anyone can be a sceptic sincerely and on principle. Either such philosophers do not exist, or they are the most miserable of men. Doubt with regards to what we ought to know is a condition too violent for the human mind. It cannot long be endured. In spite of itself, the mind decides one way or another and it prefers to be deceived rather than to believe nothing. My perplexity was increased by the fact that I had been brought up in a church which decides everything and permits no doubts, so that having rejected one article of faith, I was forced to reject the rest. As I could not accept absurd decisions, I was deprived of those which were not absurd. When I was told to believe everything, I could believe nothing, and knew not where to stop. I consulted the philosophers. I searched their books and examined their various theories. I found them all alike, proud, assertive, dogmatic, professing, even in their so-called scepticism, to know everything, proving nothing, scoffing at each other. This last trait, which was common to all of them, struck me as the only point in which they were right. Braggarts in attack, they are weaklings in defence. 
weigh their arguments, they are all destructive. Count their voices, everyone speaks for himself. They are only agreed in arguing with each other. I could find no way out of my uncertainty by listening to them. I suppose this prodigious diversity of opinion is caused, in the first place, by the weakness of the human intellect, and in the second, by pride. We have no means of measuring this vast machine. We are unable to calculate its workings. We know neither its guiding principles nor its final purpose. We do not know ourselves. We know neither our nature nor the spirit that moves us. We scarcely know whether man is one or many. We are surrounded by impenetrable mysteries. These mysteries are beyond the region of sense. We think we can penetrate them by the light of reason, but we fall back on our imagination. Through this imagined world, each forces a way for himself which he holds to be right. None can tell whether his path will lead him to the goal. Yet we long to know and understand it all. The one thing we do not know is the limit of the knowable. We prefer to trust to chance and to believe what is not true, rather than to own that not one of us can see what really is. A fragment of some vast whole whose bounds are beyond our gaze. A fragment abandoned by its creator to our foolish quarrels. We are vain enough to want to determine the nature of that whole and our own relations with regard to it. If the philosophers were in a position to declare the truth, which of them would care to do so? Every one of them knows that his own system rests on no surer foundations than the rest, but he maintains it because it is his own. There is not one of them who, if he chanced to discover the difference between truth and falsehood, would not prefer his own lie to the truth which another had discovered. Where is the philosopher who would not deceive the whole world for his own glory? If he can rise above the crowd, if he can excel his rivals, what more does he want? Among believers he is an atheist, among atheists he would be a believer. The first thing I learned from these considerations was to restrict my inquiries to what directly concerned me, to rest in profound ignorance of everything else, and not even to trouble myself to doubt anything beyond what I required to know. I also realized that the philosophers, far from ridding me of my vain doubts, only multiplied the doubts that tormented me and failed to remove any one of them. So I chose another guide and said, Let me follow the inner light. It will not lead me so far astray as others have done, or if it does, it will be my own fault. I shall not go far wrong if I follow my own illusions as if I trusted to their deceits. I then went over in my mind the various opinions which I had held in the course of my life, and I saw that although no one of them was plain enough to gain immediate belief, some were more probable than others, and my inward consent was given or withheld in proportion to this improbability. Having discovered this, I had an unprejudiced comparison of all these different ideas, and I perceived that the first and most general of them was also the simplest and the most reasonable, 
and that it would have been accepted by everyone if only it had been the last instead of the first. Imagine all your philosophers, ancient and modern, having exhausted their strange systems of force, chance, fate, necessity, atoms, a living world, animated matter, and every variety of materialism. Then comes the illustrious Clark, who gives light to the world and proclaims the beings of beings and the giver of things. What universal admiration, what unanimous applause would have greeted this new system, a system so great, so illuminating and so simple. Other systems are full of absurdities. This system seems to me to contain fewer things which are beyond the understanding of the human mind. I said to myself, Every system has its insoluble problems, for the finite mind of man is too small to deal with them. These difficulties are therefore no final arguments against any system. But what a difference there is between the direct evidence on which these systems are based. Should we not prefer that theory which alone explains all the facts, when it is no more difficult than the rest? Bearing thus within my heart the love of truth as my only philosophy, and as my only method, a clear and simple rule, which dispensed with the need for vain and subtle arguments. I returned with the help of this rule to the examination of such knowledge as concerned myself. I was resolved to admit as self-evident all that I could not honestly refuse to believe, and to admit as true all that seemed to follow directly from this. All the rest I determined to leave undecided, neither accepting nor rejecting it, nor yet troubling myself to clear up difficulties which did not lead to any practical ends. But who am I? What right have I to decide? What is it that determines my judgments? If they are inevitable, if they are the results of the impressions I receive, I am wasting my strength in such inquiries. They would be made or not without any interference of mine. I must therefore first turn my eyes upon myself to acquaint myself with the instruments I desire to use and to discover how far it is reliable. I exist and I have senses through which I receive impressions. This is the first truth that strikes me and I am forced to accept it. Have I any independent knowledge of my existence, or am I only aware of it through my sensations? This is my first difficulty, and so far I cannot solve it, for I continually experience sensations, either directly or indirectly, through memory. So how can I know if the feeling of self is something beyond these sensations, or if it can exist independently of them? My sensations take place in myself, for they make me aware of my own existence. But their cause is outside me, for they affect me whether I have any reason for them or not, and they are produced or destroyed independently of me. So I clearly perceive that my sensation, which is written within me, and its cause or its object, which is outside me, are different things. Thus not only do I exist, but other entities exist also, that is to say, the objects of my sensations, and even if these objects are merely ideas, still these ideas are not me. But everything outside myself, everything which acts upon my senses, 
I call matter, and all the particles of matter which I suppose to be united into separate entities I call bodies. Thus all the disputes of the idealists and the realists have no meaning for me. Their distinctions between the appearance and the reality of bodies are wholly fanciful. I am now as convinced of the existence of the universe as of my own. I next consider the objects of my sensations, and I find that I have the power of comparing them. So I perceive that I am endowed with an act of force of which I was not previously aware. To perceive is to feel, to compare is to judge, to judge and to feel are not the same. Through sensation objects present themselves to me separately and singularly as they are in nature. By comparing them I rearrange them, I shift them, so to speak. I place one upon another to decide whether they are alike or different, or more generally to find out their relations. To my mind, the distinctive faculty of an active or intelligent being is the power of understanding this word, is. I speak in vain in the merely sensitive entity, the intelligent force which compares and judges. I can find no trace of it in nature. This passive entity will be aware of each object separately. It will even be aware of the whole formed by the two together. But having no power to place them side by side, it can never compare them. It can never form a judgment with regard to them. To see two things at once is not to see their relations nor to judge of their differences. To perceive several objects, one beyond the other, is not to relate them. I may have at the same moment an idea of a big stick and a little stick without comparing them, without judging that one is less than the other, just as I can see my whole hand without counting my fingers. Footnote M. D. Lee Cordermine's narratives tell of a people who can only know how to count up to three. Yet the men of this nation, having hands, have often seen their fingers without learning to count up to five. End of footnote. These comparative ideas, greater, smaller, together with number ideas of one, two, etc., are certainly not sensations though my mind only produces them when my sensations occur. We are told that a sensitive being distinguishes sensations from each other by the inherent differences in the sensations. This requires explanation. When the sensations are different, the sensitive being distinguishes them by their differences. When they are alike, he distinguishes them because he is aware of them one beyond the other. Otherwise, how could he distinguish between two equal objects simultaneously experienced? He would necessarily confound the two objects and take them for one object, especially under a system which professed that the representative sensations of space have no extension. When we become aware of the two sensations to be compared, their impression is made. Each object is perceived. Both are perceived but for all that, their relation is not perceived. If the judgment of this relation were merely a sensation and came to me solely from the object itself, my judgments would never be mistaken, for it is never untrue that I feel what I feel. 
Why then am I mistaken as to the relation between these two sticks, especially when they are not parallel? Why, for example, do I say that small stick is a third of the large when it is only a quarter? Why is the picture, which is the sensation, unlike its model, which is the object? It is because I am active when I judge, because the operation of comparison is at fault, because my understanding, which judges of relations, mingles its errors with the truth of sensations, which only reveal to me things. Add to this a consideration which will, I feel sure, appeal to you when you have thought about it. It is this. If we were purely passive in the use of our senses, there would be no communication between them. It would be impossible to know that the body we are touching and the thing we are looking at is the same. Either we should never perceive anything outside ourselves, or there would be for us five substances perceptible by the senses, whose identity we should have no means of perceiving. This power of my mind, which brings my sensations together and compares them, may be called by any name. Let it be called attention, meditation, reflection, or what you will. It is still true that it is in me and not in things, that it is I alone who produce it, though I only produce it when I receive an impression from things. Though I am compelled to feel or not to feel, I am free to examine more or less what I feel. Being now, so to speak, sure of myself, I begin to look at things outside myself, and I behold myself with a sort of shudder, flung at random into this vast universe, plunged as it were into the vast number of entities, knowing nothing of what they are in themselves or in relation to me. I study them, I observe them, and the first object which suggests itself for comparison with them is myself. All that I perceive through the senses is matter, and I deduce all the essential properties of matter from the sensible qualities which make me perceive it, qualities which are inseparable from it. I see it sometimes in motion, sometimes at rest. Hence I infer that neither motion nor rest is essential to it, but motion, being an action, is the result of a cause of which rest is only the absence. Footnote. This repose is, if you prefer it, merely relative, but as we perceive more or less of motion, we may plainly conceive one of two extremes, which is rest, and we conceive it so clearly that we are even disposed to take for absolute rest what is only relative but it is not true that motion is of the essence of matter, if matter may be conceived of us at rest. End of footnote. When, therefore, there is nothing acting upon matter, it does not move, and for the very reason that rest and motion are indifferent to it, its natural state is a state of rest. I perceive two sorts of motions of bodies, acquired motion and spontaneous or voluntary motion. In the first, the cause is external to the body moved. In the second, it is within. I shall not conclude from that that motion, say of a watch, is spontaneous, for if no external cause operated upon the spring, 
it would run down and the watch would cease to go. For the same reason, I should not admit that the movements of fluids are spontaneous. Neither should I attribute spontaneous motion to fire, which causes their fluidity. Footnote. Chemists regard phlogiston, or the element of fire, as diffused, motionless and stagnant in the compounds of which it forms part, until external forces sets it free, collect it and set it in motion, and change it into fire. End of footnote. You ask of me if the movements of animals are spontaneous. My answer is, I cannot tell you, but analogy points that way. You ask me again, how do I know that there are spontaneous movements? I tell you, I know it because I feel them. I want to move my arm, and I move it without any other immediate cause of the movement but my own will. In vain would anyone try to argue me out of this feeling. It is stronger than any proofs. You might as well try to convince me that I do not exist. If there is no spontaneity in men's actions, nor anything that happens on this earth, it would be all the more difficult to imagine a first cause for all motion. For my own part, I feel myself so thoroughly convinced that the natural state of matter is a state of rest, and that it has no power of action in itself, that when I see a body in motion I at once assume that it is either a living body or that this motion has been imparted to it. My mind declines to accept in any way the idea of inorganic matter moving of its own accord or giving any rise to any action. Yet this visible universe consists of matter, matter diffused and dead. Matter which has none of the cohesion, the organisation, the common feeling of the parts of a living body. For it is certain that we who are parts have no consciousness of the whole. Footnote. I have tried hard to grasp the idea of a living molecule, but in vain. The idea of matter feeling without any senses seems to me unintelligible and self-contradictory. To accept or reject this idea one must first understand it and i confess that so far i have not succeeded End of footnote. this same universe is in motion and in its movements ordered uniform and subject to fixed laws it has none of that freedom which appears in the spontaneous movements of men and animals so the world is not some huge animal which moves of its own accord its movements are therefore due to some external cause, a cause which I cannot perceive. But the inner voice makes this cause so apparent to me that I cannot watch the course of the sun without imagining a force which drives it. And when the earth revolves, I think I can see the hand that sets it in motion. If I must accept general laws whose essential relation to matter is unperceived by me, how much further have I got? These laws, not being real things, but being substances, have therefore some other basis unknown to me. Experiment and observation have acquainted us with the laws of motion. These laws determine the results without showing their causes. They are quite inadequate to explain the system of the world and the course of the universe. With the help of dice, Descartes made heaven and earth but he could not set his dice in motion. 
nor start the action of his centrifugal force without the help of rotation. Newton discovered the law of gravitation, but gravitation alone would soon reduce the universe to a motionless mass. He was compelled to add a projectile force to account for the elliptical course of the celestial bodies. Let Newton show us the hand that launched the planets in the tangent of their orbits.